Welcome back to Footnotes, a Yale Daily News history podcast. Today, we will be discussing the history of affirmative action. First, we will provide an overview of the Supreme Court cases that came before the ruling in June. Then, we will turn to recent history. Nana Agrawal-Hardin and Tony Ruan join us for a discussion about recent efforts to organize Asian American students in support of affirmative action at Yale. Welcome back to Footnotes. Today we're going to be bringing you an episode about affirmative action and its history. I'm one of your hosts, Rashika. I'm a sophomore in Benjamin Franklin College. And I'm Zawadi. I'm your other host tonight, and I'm a sophomore in Murray. All right, so we want to just get started by delving into a little bit of the history of the first times affirmative action was used. Zawadi, do you want to kick this off? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so. The term affirmative action was first used in 1935 as a part of a federal law called the Wagner Act. The Wagner Act gave workers the right to form and join unions. Later on in 1961, JFK used affirmative action again in race and gender-based employment discrimination in an executive order. I thought this was a pretty interesting passage just because of the way affirmative action is described. So I'll read that now. It said... Take affirmative action to assure that applicants are employed and employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. Later in the executive order, a phrase that's mentioned is good faith effort to ensure fair treatment and equity where historically it has not been, um, which I feel like is really relevant to conversations on affirmative action in educational systems, which leads me into how this began as an educational conversation. It was actually directly influenced by the civil rights movement in the 60s, shortly after MLK's assassination in 1968. A lot of universities were pressured by not only students, but also like community efforts to diversify their student bodies. So I guess in one sense, that looked like universities also taking good faith effort to include historically marginalized people in higher education. Right. I think for a lot of that, it's most often reflected in our admissions process, right? Which is what the center of what the debate's always been about, it feels like. I guess we think back on the evolution of how affirmative action has been implemented in terms of admissions. And the very big first Supreme Court case about affirmative action was University of California v. Baki, where University of California's med school had been implementing quotas for how many minority students they would admit. And Baki was a white student who felt like he had been discriminated against by not receiving a spot. This case was in 1978. And essentially the ruling of the Supreme Court was that use of quotas and Admissions is unconstitutional. However, we could use race as a factor, which has been the through line to um, how we still consider affirmative action in terms of how Yale admits, how any college admits students. I think what's interesting about Baki, though, is a lot of other uh, institutions that Yale would consider itself a peer of, like Harvard, Columbia, UPenn, Stanford, came together to write a brief and essentially were defending affirmative action, saying that diversity is something that in a good faith effort is important for colleges to maintain on campuses and that it required acknowledgement of race during the admissions process. And at the time, Yale chose not to join um, and took no stance on University of California v. Baki. 
which is something that we've now seen a big change. You know, as Yale has been very vocal as we have these upcoming cases, it's been a big 180, which is interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. I think affirmative action accomplished a lot of major steps for like minority people just shortly after that movement, after MLK's assassination, the Harvard class admitted a record number of black students. But that said, even though those affirmative action efforts were successful in some capacities, it's important, like you were saying, Rashika, to add nuance to the conversation, even as it stands today, as we're like witnessing, and you'll hear more about in the interview. But back then as well. We actually found this interesting quote from Harvard's Dean of Admissions. His name was Dr. Carabell. He says, a student who had survived the hazards of poverty was intellectually thirsty and had room for growth would be given preference. That was four weeks after Dr. King's death. And I think it's an interesting quote because it gives rise to how throughout history, public figures who were pro-affirmative action weren't always anti-racist. And even though we get to celebrate notable POC who have benefited from affirmative action today, the road to getting to that progress hasn't always been perfectly streamlined. In this next segment, Rashika and I discuss recent activism on campus with juniors Nana and Tony. Nana discusses a teach-in at the Asian American Cultural Center, and Tony describes his experience joining a delegation of 40 undergrads who traveled to Washington, D.C. in October of 2022 to protest in favor of affirmative action. This interview was recorded last semester before the court decided Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC. Today, we're going to be interviewing two wonderful members of the Yale community, Nana and Tony, who are also a part of the Asian American Student Alliance on campus. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. Hey, I'm Nana. I'm a rising junior in Franklin College, served as political co-chair of ASA with Tony, and also am a political action and education staffer at the Asian American Cultural Center. Yeah, my name is Tony, uh, also a rising junior in Franklin. I currently serve as one of the three moderators of the Asian American Students Alliance and also, as Nana mentioned, was one of the co-political chairs with her back in, back in the day. Amazing. So as we know, we're talking about affirmative action today and both Tony and Nana have been a part of a lot of amazing work on campus organizing student coalitions to do things like the teach-in or go down to D.C. and... Honestly, I wanted to start the podcast by just opening with the question of why do you guys feel like it's important for Asian American activism from students particularly in regards to the conversation on affirmative action? Yeah, I mean, I can just go ahead really quick. I mean, the most obvious reason for for the importance of Asian American activism supporting affirmative action is because it's largely Asian Americans as the public face opposing affirmative action. Students for Fair Admissions, the organization that brought this lawsuit against Harvard, UNC, against Yale, against countless other universities, although it's primarily organized and funded by uh, a white dude named Ed Blum, the public face of it is largely, the, the discourse has been shaped around this idea of discrimination against Asian Americans, and as such, opposing affirmative action is the Asian American stance. And so, at least for ASA, that was a large reason that we wanted to make sure that we had some actions uh, supporting affirmative action. Yeah, and I would just add that Ed Blum and the broader conservative playbook that he represents are, like, for me, very representative of white supremacy. And so it's particularly infuriating to see Asian Americans effectively just, like, used as pawns in this 
this game that really doesn't advantage us. Yeah, so echoing everything Tony said there. Right, yeah. The idea of the model minority myth as a weapon against yeah. any racial progress. But um, more specifically, with the teach-in, I think that's such a cool idea. And Do you want to like explain to our listeners what the teach-in involved? Yeah, yeah. So we had several really excellent legal experts from a variety of legal nonprofits, including Asian Americans Advancing Justice and a few other groups, come in and talk at an AACC staff meeting about the case that was playing out in the Supreme Court during that time about the history of affirmative action, especially the legal history, and about where the current moment might lead us. And we invited not only AACC staffers, for whom it was like essentially mandatory, but also staffers from other cultural centers and just the general public to join in in person or on Zoom. We had a really great turnout. And I think that for me, it was really special to use this extension of Yale as an institution, which is the AACC, right? Like we get our funding from Yale, we get our support from Yale to kind of like take a stance on affirmative action and really make sure that everyone who's part of that community has full context on not only why it's been important in the past, but also how they can fight to defend it in the future. I think that sort of unequivocal support for affirmative action backed by the AACC was really important to me. I love that it was all the staffers mm-hmm. had to go because I think that's it's just a really interesting idea, right? You need to be able to have the vocabulary, the background to be able to talk about this. I love the idea of that. Zawadi and I were talking a little bit before about how I love that you guys brought in lawyers and stuff like that, but how do you go about providing that education? How do you decide what's critical for other students to know about? Because it's a sensitive topic, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what went into that side of things. Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, it was framed as not just the dissemination of information to a small set of students on Yale's campus, but also as a resource for students who wanted to talk to either their friends here at Yale or perhaps even more importantly, their families about some of these issues. And so I think framing it as a resource to kickstart further discussion as opposed to, I don't know, another class or like sit down, like I said, mandatory earlier, but like mandatory training session was really helpful just for inspiring people to come up with their own questions and sort of use it in whatever way was going to be helpful to them down the line. And then I think we left quite a bit of time for question and answer at the end and so a lot of it was just giving people a space to ask whatever questions had been on their mind in a in a place that hopefully they didn't feel like they would be judged for asking because you're right like it is really nuanced it's challenging a lot of people might have family members or friends who are you know of a different political belief than them as a voice in their ears talking about how affirmative action is bad for Asian Americans and we didn't want people to feel penalized for like bringing up those concerns and asking um, to hear people's perspectives on that in the context of the teaching. That's really beautiful. I don't know, it's, it's very cool to have that sort of a forum. Were the other cultural centers on Yale involved in this at all? What was that like? Yeah, I remember one of my good friends who's a PL at La Casa was there and she was there with a few of her friends and I felt really so, so happy to see them in the audience and see this as a moment of intercultural solidarity. I mean, I really can't overstate how powerful that was, given that this entire lawsuit is predicated upon dividing people of different racial backgrounds. And so, yeah, we we invited all of the other cultural centers with their staff and their PLs and then had pretty great turnout from those communities. I also wanted to talk a little bit more about 
that idea of collaboration between the different cultural centers on Yale's campus. I know that in the trip down to D.C., it was every single cultural center on campus sent someone down there, which is, I think it's really powerful. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what that was like? Yeah, so the decision to do that came out of two distinct strands. The first was largely, again, this, this idea that Asian Americans being the public face or being portrayed as the public face as opponents of affirmative action pitted against other racial minorities, we felt it was important to stand not only in support of affirmative action, but also to do so in the context and solidarity, as Nana said, with other racial minority groups on campus. And the second one of which is that we really want to, there's a, there's a really long and rich history of intercultural solidarity and act, uh, activism across the U.S., but specifically even on Yale's campus. You know, for example, when the AACC was first founded, it was shared with the Latine Chicanx students. It was split down the middle. And right now, if you go into the AACC, you see there's a wall literally down the middle dividing the two sides. And in La Casa and the AACC used to be split down the middle. And to sort of revive those institutional, the, the institutional memory of, of having those arrangements and, and standing in solidarity with one another was something that was largely lost during the pandemic. I mean, going back all the way to the 1960s, when ASA, Yale's ASA was first founded in 1969, it came out of a very well-developed tradition of, of West Coast organizing of cross-Asian, Latina, Native, Indigenous, and Black students. And so to sort of revitalize those alliances, uh, even if it's you know, for this one particular issue, it speaks to a broader history of activism across different racial minorities on Yale's campus. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in the context of bringing that back post-COVID. But that is, I don't know, that's really exciting. And as when you guys were down in D.C., you guys were also meeting other colleges that sent students down, I believe. Do you feel like that eagerness to get back to having these conversations in a multicultural setting is something that not just Yale is doing, but all these other colleges that are also now rallying around this? Was it something you saw a lot of down there? Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of different factors that go into sort of the, the dynamics and the making of a, of a cross-cultural coalition. I mean, you could point to a lot of different factors in terms of nowadays, a lot of Asian immigrants are particularly East Asian immigrants come as highly skilled laborers back like our generations. A lot of the Asian immigrations, also Asian immigrations starting from the late 90s all the way up until today come largely from programs like H-1B visas, which bring in highly skilled, generally more well-off immigrants. And that creates a a particular divide among not just racial minorities, other racial minorities, but particularly within the Asian American group. You know, the group has, the Asian American label has very political roots dating back to the 1970s and the 1960s activism. But as we sort of interrogate what it means to be Asian American, it's such a broad term that it's almost silly to sort of say that, oh, we have shared experiences, even if our parents immigrated with completely different circumstances across different, completely different time periods. So to then be able to sort of build these coalitions around issues supporting other racial minorities is sometimes no difficult. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, we see a lot of not necessarily conflict, but disagreements among different pockets of the Asian American community. But it was really cool to see that when we we're in D.C., a lot of different schools, as well as our own groups. Uh, we're really excited to get we're, we're really excited to sort of continue that tradition of of intercultural solidarity. Mm. I think it's interesting you mentioned the fact that Asian American is a label. The experience is so different from how your parents came here, how long you've been here, et cetera, all those things. And I think that's also a big part of the conversation that people are having with affirmative action in general, where they're like, my experience is not defined by the label of Asian American. They feel as though that they're assigned all this baggage. 
I'm curious how you guys feel about people voicing, because that is a real concern, right? But does that have to exist in opposition with the progress we're making with affirmative action? Yeah, I mean, I can start off. There's no simple answer Mm -hmm. to these questions. The history of the term Asian American, as Tony mentioned, is rooted in third world liberation organizing from the West Coast in the 70s. It was essentially like created to unify those experiences so that people could organize effectively for like ethnic studies programs, increased resources for diverse populations on campuses that have been, you know, historically very white. And I think that the trick is to maintain the term Asian American as a way to bring people together when we need to show collective power, because despite all of these differences and when your parents came here or, you know, how the dominant group perceives you, there are like a lot of shared struggles. And so I think that's when the term is useful. And then also as a quote unquote Asian American community, having really critical conversations about just all of those things that differentiate us and how to show solidarity, both to different demographics within the Asian American community and also to other racial minorities outside of it. So yeah, I I think the term Asian American is most useful when we need to demonstrate collective power. And I think that's why it was coined way back in the 70s. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, as Nana just really well put there is this is fundamentally a question of how do we leverage power? How do we build power? You know, there's really two ways that someone can have power. One is you have a lot of money. The second one is you, you build enough people power, I guess, for lack of a better term, in a way that you're able to mobilize a broad coalition. You either build power through money, you build power through people. And the label Asian American has always been used in that way. Well, not always, but has traditionally was formed and I would say at its best used in a way to, to leverage collective power, as Nana said, for these goals that have largely uh, overall benefited. You know, there's, uh, has, has largely benefited, benefited the Asian American community writ large, however you define that. And I will say there is a very distinct strand of Asian American conservatism that has risen over the past 30 or 40 so years. And a lot of it comes back to the same idea of individualism, just keep your head down and work. Education is one avenue in which you, you're, it's a meritocracy. And that's where a lot of the conversations around affirmative action, particularly in Asian American communities, stems from as well. Sort of this idea that the playing field has rules that everyone follows and that these rules, if for Asian Americans to, to follow them, you can rise up and you can you know, succeed. So that's sort of the strand of Asian American conservatism. That's the understanding of affirmative action, of education, of college admissions. Now, what we see, in, and you know, as, as a lot of us know, that's not the case. You know, there are uncountable number of factors that influence whether you know, someone's educational success. And that's not even to mention, how do we define success in education? You know, it's not like this is on aggregate in the grand scheme of what Yale is doing. A very, very small percentage of people apply to Yale and a very, very small percentage of people go to Yale. And because of that on aggregate, affirmative action on its whole is not necessarily a vehicle to deliver racial equality, uh, economic equality for a lot of people. But it is addressing the rules of the game that have fundamentally excluded a lot of people for a very long time. And I think that's sort of the, the dialogue around affirmative action that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, on aggregate, this is not helping, you know, like a majority of, the, this is not helping, you know, a majority of Asian Americans. And this is a very small sect of the Asian American experience, but that's not to diminish its significance in any way. I would just add to that, that I think Tony's absolutely right about the numbers game there. And for me, affirmative action is also so valuable because it's 
an assertion or a reassertion of the work that's left to be done. Mm. Like it is a it is a very strong statement that confirms that things are not equal now and that, you know, the injustices of the past still have an impact today. And th- like that's why the the attacks on affirmative action are scary to me is because that's what they're trying to say, right? Is that right. okay, we did it. We solved racism. It's over now. It's good. And that's so not true as, you know, as all of us here know. So yeah, I think it, it has immense like symbolic and rhetorical value for those reasons. Yeah, totally. I believe in O'Connor's writing, she talks about how like she initially visioned some sort of maybe in 25 years, mm-hmm. we'll see that we don't need affirmative action anymore. And I don't think we're there yet. And it's mm-hmm. scary to think about the idea that perhaps these justices ha- right. can decide that we're there yet. Right. I think that's very well put. I wanted to go back a little bit to what you talked about building power through people and like coalition. And I know I referenced the DC trip somewhat in the abstract, but do you want to talk a little bit about what actually the the trip down to DC entailed and what that was like? Uh, Yeah, so that was 41 students across Asa, Mecha, Bise, and Nisei. So um, the four cultural political groups representing Asian, uh, Latine, Native, Indigenous, and Black students uh, in that order. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole point was that bringing down a coalition of people, 41, again, uh, if we're playing the numbers game here, 41 is, is not that much. But I think what was important to us was that we bring down a significant coalition of students that are all very dedicated to this idea that, like, yeah, like we are building power together. And then what that means sometimes is just showing up. You know, realistically, we have very little power in this particular Supreme Court case. We will probably get the decision in June and there will be a lot of fallout from that decision. That is not to say that, you know, the the demonstration in DC was largely just demonstrative, largely just a, a symbolic. But I think the importance of that coalition was largely building and rekindling a lot of those cross-cultural relationships that we've been talking about throughout the podcast. And just to sort of wind us down, I was talking to a first year in Asa the other day. We were walking and talking, and I was asking her how she became so close with her cohort of fellow Asa first years because they have really, really lovely close relationships with each other. It's very cute. It's, it's very cute. <laughs> um, can confirm. And she said, you know, really, it was D.C. It was, you know, going to D.C., having the experience of mobilizing together in person for some of them, you know, for the first time ever, for others of them for the first time since COVID, and being together all the time for that weekend and in those very powerful experiences and now it's just amazing to see the close bonds that have come out of that for that group of first years and that's also part of it like talk about people power that's how you sustain people power and I was really gratified to hear her talk about that Mm -hmm. well thank you guys so much for coming on and sharing thank you for all the work you guys do and hopefully maybe this podcast will help people collect some more power we'll see (laughs) but no I really appreciate you guys coming and talking with us it's lovely to hear your perspectives lovely to hear about the work you've done and I think I'm grateful that these are things that you guys are addressing you guys are two great minds is what I'm saying here and I'm very glad you guys joined us yeah thank you guys so much thanks for having us thank you